And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard to live in our culture today as Christians, and I hear this more and more as the reflection of Christians, that even some of the very basic beliefs and truths that we hold to, because we're Christian, and because the Bible is really clear about a lot of things, are not only outside the mainstream, but they're ridiculed or, or even attacked as being some form of you know, bigotry or hatred or some exclusivity that is beyond the pale. And just as you interact with our city and you see people living for money and sex and entertainment and all the things that people are living for, and you feel like a minority sometimes, it's just challenging. And I'm so grateful this morning that we are coming to a book that expresses Paul the Apostle's idea of what do you do when that's your situation? When you find yourself a stunning minority and a marginalized minority at that in the midst of a pagan and pluralistic society, how do you live? How many of you use a mapping software app on a phone? Okay, where, where are my Google Map people? Where are my Apple Map people? Uh, Waze? Waze people? What did you say? Not here yet? The Waze people? Wow, I'm here. I'm here. In fact, I've invested so many years on Waze and made enough notifications for other, to, like, to help other drivers that I have a fighter jet now. Um, so the kids noticed this on the screen the other day in the car, that now I'm no longer a car, I'm a fighter jet. So I've upgraded, and it's a lot of fun. I raise that because whatever platform you use, when you are first saying, here's my destination, and you say, go, or whatever, start drive, it'll kind of show you this overview, like this bird's eye view of, here's where I am, here's where I'm going, and here's the whole thing at a glance. 
And I find that really helpful, like in the morning when we're driving all the way across town to get our boys to school, and sometimes I-70 shut down because of a wreck, and we're actually driving through downtown and then working our way out the other side and continue going. And it's just good to see like this overview of not just doing the next turn, that level of detail, but seeing, let's back away, look at the whole thing, be like, okay, I see the whole thing, now let's start the drive. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning with this message, because we're actually, if you're in Acts 19, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning I want to, before we dive into chapter 1, verse 3, which is really getting into the meat of Paul's first doctrinal teaching, I want to kind of show us where we're going. So Ephesians 1, just verses 1 and 2, say this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is the word of the Lord. This is an epistle, okay? So as you're going through the Bible and you read, there's history, there's law, there's gospels, narrative stories about the life of Jesus. There's uh, poetry, like the Psalms that we went through this summer. This is a genre of literature called an epistle, which just means a letter. And some very basic information you're looking for to kind of orient this whole drive through the book is if it's a letter, there's an author, there's a recipient, and there's a reason that this letter is being written. And I want to go through each of those things with you. So number one, authorship. And it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I want to back up a moment, and the reason I had us read some verses from Ephesians or from Acts 19 this morning is so that you would understand Paul is no stranger to many of these Ephesian Christians. He had actually come there on multiple ones of his various missionary journeys across what was Asia Minor at the time, or called Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, then into Greece and even all the way to Rome and back. He had gone there. And even the section we read this morning shows us that for several months he was in the synagogue of the Jews and he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah until he gets kicked out, which always happened because they only took it so long hearing from him that Jesus was the Messiah. They're not waiting for a Messiah to come. He's come. He's laid down his life. He's taken it up again. When he gets kicked out, this is interesting. It says he, he reasoned daily for a couple years in this hall of Tyrannus, like an ancient university. And as a result of ministering in a university, the, the word of God and the gospel made its way all over the empire. So he plants a church there in Ephesus, which would have been a predominantly Gentile church with Jewish followers of Jesus in the mix. You could go on to chapter 20 in Acts, and you'd find out that he raised up a whole body of elders, and he counseled them on how do you now lead the church in my absence as I go on to Jerusalem and do the next thing that God has called me to. And my point of that backstory is that when, when you pick up a letter, when it arrives in the mail, so to speak, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you're like, this is a respected and trusted voice. And still it's interesting he shares his credentials. And I'll show you why he does in just a moment. But notice he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The word apostle is like a messenger. So he's saying like those first 
12 apostles that were disciples, but then are sent out by Jesus as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. He's saying, now I have been an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus, and God has commissioned me to go and share this good news that Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose for your salvation. But what's interesting is he says, I am that by the will of God, which is an understatement. Part of what he is saying is, I'm not an apostle by my will. In fact, it was against my will. And if you know this story from Acts chapter 9, Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ kicking and screaming, which is also an understatement. Paul, who was known then by his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul was a a Pharisee. He'd worked his way up through the schools of religion in his day and become very knowledgeable in the Word of God. But he had taken that to understand that Jesus not only was not the true Messiah, he believed with all his heart on the authority of Old Testament scriptures that he misunderstood that Jesus was a complete fraud. And so he, with the authority of both the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish religious governing body that sat in Jerusalem and also the Roman authority was going around and he was rounding up early Christians and bringing them back to be persecuted and even martyred for their faith. And we read an earlier story in Acts where he's even the one who's, you know, here, you want to stone this guy, Stephen, let me hold your coats as you do that. So you got a little freer range of motion to chuck rocks at this follower of Jesus. Well, the Bible says he's on the way to and from Jerusalem, arresting more Christians, despising Jesus in his heart, actively arresting, actively persecuting. And suddenly on the road, there is this bright light and this voice from heaven, and he recognizes it's God. But he says, who are you, Lord? Like, I I know it's you. I know it's God. But who is God? I'm not so certain anymore. And it's Jesus speaking to Saul, Paul, and basically confronting him and saying, not only did you get it all wrong, but now I want to save you by my grace and pull you aside into the wilderness and train you up and send you out to bring this good news, especially to the Gentiles, that they can be saved by grace through faith. I love this. Brian Chappell says, what right did he have to speak for God? None at all, based on his record. But Paul is not an apostle because of his record. He's an apostle because of Christ's redemption. And so Paul is going to be a living, breathing testimony of his own central message that he highlights, which is the grace of God. And Paul is going to spend the rest of his life basically saying, look, God does not save good people and condemn bad people. God is in the business of, by grace, saving all kinds of bad people who have done all kinds of different bad things to different degrees. But there aren't good and bad people, really. And God isn't saving anyone on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of his own grace. So that's packed into this phrase. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by the will of God, he's saying, God arrested my attention and he transformed my life. And you already know that backstory. And now, if you didn't, you do as well. That's the authorship. What about the recipients? Notice the next phrase. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I think this is fascinating because it's almost like he's geographically orienting these 
disciples, these followers of Jesus, two different ways. He's saying simultaneously you're in Ephesus and you're in Christ. Now, Ephesus is obviously their physical location. Their address would have been something, you know, Ephesus, Asia. But what does it mean to be in Christ? This is a favorite phrase of Paul. As we go through this book, you'll see he uses in Christ or in him nearly 25 times in the books. And I mean, you know, on the surface, it's, it's not like being in Denver. It's, it's not like I am physically located in Jesus Christ, but it's also not like being in love. And it's also not like being in trouble. So what does it mean? Um, very simply, in Christ is going to become this classic Paul expression of union and the intimacy of our union and our fellowship with Jesus Christ that comes by faith alone. So every time you see this phrase throughout the book, he's highlighting some benefit or some benefits that are ours because of identification with Jesus. So being in Christ is like, oh, you're united to him. He identifies with you and you by faith identify with him. Therefore, you get all these benefits and blessings and rights that you didn't have otherwise. And by the way, do you know how Paul first came to understand that? That you could be in Christ and have certain benefits by kind of like being hidden in him. Well, remember I told you a moment ago about this confrontation with this voice from heaven. And we learn in that story as Paul retells the story a number of times in the book of Acts and other places, retelling his own testimony. He's like, this is what the voice said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he could have been like, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the people that follow you, that believe in you. But the point is, Jesus so identified with the people who were coming after him as apprentices and disciples, following him in faith, that to attack them was to attack him. It's a benefit that if, you're, if someone's doing something to you as a follower of Jesus, they're doing it to Jesus. So Jesus sees, Jesus knows, Jesus cares, Jesus identifies with you in that. So, and, and that's about all I want to say about that for now. We're going to dig into this in the weeks to come. But for now, I just want you to notice this kind of dual citizenship. Like you are located in Ephesus, but you are also located in a sense in Christ. And you have the benefits and blessings of Roman citizenship. But you also have the benefits and blessing of this other citizenship, which is yours, not by birth, like where you got in, where you were born. You happen to be born in the Roman Empire as a Gentile. You get all these rights. But, but by the new birth, you get all these spiritual rights in Jesus. Now we go on to the saints who are in Ephesus. Let me, let me just give you a little backstory, a little bit of detail on the city of Ephesus as it existed at the time. I think this will help us make sense of some things that come up in the book later on. So Ephesus, you know, if you looked at a map and it's called Turkey today, Turkey, the west coast of Turkey is on the Aegean Sea, like straight across the Aegean Sea is Greece, Athens, all that. So Ephesus is a port city on the Aegean Sea connected to the Mediterranean. At this time, it was the third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire, behind probably just like Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, some of these other very large cities. Ephesus was the Roman capital of the Asian province. So this whole region, again, that we now call modern-day Turkey, this was the Roman capital. So you would expect to see a lot of those classic Roman buildings in Ephesus, like a Colosseum, 
and, and quartz and uh, viaducts and all that, and in fact, you did. Ephesus was an incredibly important city because it's the crossroads of major trade routes. And if you studied this in some history class way back when, you know this Silk Road coming out of China and India and Persia and coming across the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia into this region that connects to the Royal Road and the terminus of that road was Ephesus. So everything coming from China, from India, from Persia, from what's modern day Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, all of that area is coming to Ephesus and it stops because there's the ocean. And then they load up all that stuff on ships in the harbor of Ephesus and it gets shipped over to places like Athens and Rome and even as far as Spain and other places to the west of Europe. Uh, conversely, things that are coming out of and being produced by the Roman Empire in Italy and Greece are coming to Ephesus and then continuing on land to the Far East. So th this is part of why as a commercial hub for all these transactions in a major port city, there's also one of the, one of the largest ancient libraries in the world. You heard about the school of Tyrannus in Acts 19 that people are coming from all over the world and they're getting an education and they're debating things and they're dialoguing and they're wrestling with ideas and concepts and, and philosophy and religion and all these things. And by Paul preaching and teaching the gospel there, I mean, it's like a, it's like a major university today. It's like Harvard or Yale or UCLA or whatever. People are coming from all over the world. They're studying together. They get introduced to Jesus and they take Jesus and the gospel back wherever they go. Backing up just a step, what kind of initially put Ephesus on the map is that, and I, I don't have details about this, there's speculation about what this was, but you can read about this in Acts 19, where apparently something fell from the sky one day, and they're like, oh my word, this is the special rock from Artemis, uh, was her Greek name, or Diana was her Roman name. And so they build this huge temple to Artemis or Diana, and it's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is this temple of Artemis in Ephesus, four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. And everybody knows the Parthenon. This is four times bigger than that. It's the size of basically a professional football stadium, this whole complex. And they're worshiping this goddess. And there were, um, there were sexual rites even attached to, this to the worship of this particular goddess. You can read in Acts 19 where Paul preaching the gospel, people stopped buying silver trinkets to this goddess and the city got in an uproar because they're like, oh, you're, you're undermining our trade. Nobody's buying our stuff anymore because they don't believe that she's anything. They don't believe she's a goddess. So there's an uproar and they kick Paul out of the city. A couple other things. This, the largest theater in the Roman Empire was in Ephesus and it was also a, a center for superstition, for magic, for incantations, for spells, for mysteries. And at this time of Paul, Ephesian writings was synonymous with incantation, spells, mysteries. And you're going to see as we get into this book that Paul's going to kind of riff off of that and use this word mystery and be like, let's talk about a mystery. But here's the mystery. And he tells you what it is. The mystery is what God is doing through Jesus Christ to build a new humanity that includes Jews and Gentiles, together redeemed by grace and grace alone. 
But I come back to this question I led off with. How do you stay true to Christ in a place like this where money and education are everything? Everyone bows to idols and entertainment and pleasure and sexuality. The answer is you got to know you're in Christness. You have to be grounded in and satisfied by eternal spiritual benefits that being in a marginalized minority does not shake you because you know what your faith is in. Let's talk again about these people, the recipients. Notice first Paul calls them saints. And we hear that word today and you may think of like the Roman Catholic Church and the idea of sainthood. And the interesting thing is, in our modern concept of sainthood, we're actually doing the opposite of what happens in the Bible because now we're like, there's, there's some emphasis on something really unique or special about this person. They were, they were super extra holy and they had gifts and powers and, and other people witnessed these miracles or something that they did and said, yep, that's a saint. And we may even shy away from the idea of sainthood or being a saint or whatever. We're like, I'm no, I'm no saint, you know, I'm a sinner. But the biblical emphasis, the word, the word saint simply means set apart. Set apart by God, for God, consecrated to God's purposes. And the emphasis is not on the goodness or the unique holiness of the individual per se, but is, but is rather on the grace of God. The grace of God called you, set you apart, and said, you're a saint. So from the greatest in the church to the least in the church, from the, from the most obedient in the church to someone who's like, man, I am really struggling, but I trust in Jesus. Paul would be like, saint, by the grace of God. Notice this next phrase, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I think here the emphasis is less on their faithfulness, like they're trustworthy, and more that they are full of faith. Faith full like that. And I think there's an interesting balance even there. It's like God has set them apart by his grace and they are choosing to walk in faith because they're in Christ. Now notice this greeting. So we've talked about the author. We've talked about the recipients, a little bit about this city. Now the greeting, the next verse, verse two, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And note grace and peace are two of Paul's favorite words. Probably because he came to see how much he depended on the one in order to accomplish the other. He depended on the grace of God to accomplish peace in his life. And he can tell testimonies of, I was striving for peace with God. I was working, working, working to gain access to peace with God. And I thought I was doing the right thing. And elsewhere in his testimonies, he'll say, look, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a law keeper. Like I crossed my T's and dotted my I's and whatever that law told me to do, I tried to do it to the best of my ability with all my heart because I wanted peace with God. And then one day Jesus shocks me and is like, you are not getting peace with God. This, in fact, there's enmity here because you are attacking and persecuting me. And he comes to realize if I want peace with God, if I want to be reconciled and not an adversary, I am completely dependent upon this word grace, which is the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor, like undeserved. You didn't earn it. You can't repay it. God giving you something that just, it, it's, 
way beyond you. It's way beyond me. It's way beyond Paul. None of us can access it but for the fact that it is a completely free gift. Grace to give us peace. And this is the Greek word, erene, which is the Greek word for the more familiar Hebrew word, shalom. Reconciliation, harmony, wholeness, perfect rest. Now, who does this come from? Who does this grace, who does this peace come from? Notice he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father. This would have been incredible because the Jews thought, well, in a, in a sense of a national sense, in the, in the sense of being a collective people, yes, God is the, the father of our collective people. He birthed our people. But Jews did not think in terms of, like, me. He's my father. What they certainly did not think of is that Paul or anyone would ever address Gentiles and say, he's your father too. He's your intimate. Not just this all-powerful sovereign, this almighty God, but the intimacy and love of a father, equally accessible by Jew or Gentile. The grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are so familiar with these words, we can just, Lord Jesus Christ, yeah, okay, what's next? Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Kurios, master, ruler, God. This is the word that if you're, if you're transliterating the, the Old Testament and you see that word Yahweh as the covenant name of God, this is the word that's going to go back there in the Septuagint, which is uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, going back to the very early years of the church. And you're reading through there, and this word Kurios is there, and it's like, wait, he, so he's talking about Wait, so Jesus is like equal with Yahweh. He is God. Jesus is his name. You know, so this is why when you're in the Gospels, the interactions with Jesus are usually around this name. Jesus, that's, that's your name. I'm Matt. He was Jesus. Okay? But there's a, a connotation there of this idea of being a savior, a deliverer. And then Christ is not last name. It's not like, it's not like Jesus is first name. Christ is last name. Christ is... A, a role, it's a title, and Christos is the word that's like Messiah. He's the king. He's the anointed one that the Old Testament has pointed for, saying there's an anointed king, an anointed prophet, an anointed priest who's coming to make everything right. And so Paul here at the outset is saying this grace, this unmerited, undeserved favor, and this peace, this tranquility, this reconciliation with God comes from the Father, and through the Lord, who is Jesus the Christ. A couple other things here, and then we're, we're done for this morning. But again, I want to I give you this overview and just kind of tell you a little bit about the shape of this letter. So you can, you can thumb ahead just a couple pages. You'll see it's six chapters. In truly Paul fashion, what he does with the first part of a letter is he lays out doctrine, which is, uh, it's a heavy word, but it shouldn't be. It's like he's teaching you about God. He's teaching you about salvation. He's teaching you about the church. He's teaching you about the Holy Spirit. He's teaching you about sin and rescue and all these things, doctrine, okay? And then based on that, he starts talking about duties. Or many commentators before me have put it this way. He starts by talking in the indicative mood, 
And then at some point he changes to the imperative, but the imperatives are always based on the indicative. The duty is always based on the doctrine. To put it another way, he starts off saying, here's what God has done. Therefore, here's what you should do in light of what God has already done. So it's kind of like this. He gives you theology, which is intended to lead to doxology, like praise God that these things are true, which that doxology, that gratitude is really what's supposed to fuel your life and mine. So I, I love this, that it's, it's a gospel-driven letter where he says, everything that you do, everything that you're called to do, the stuff that you like doing and the stuff you don't like doing, the stuff you're, you're happy to give up and the stuff you are kicking and screaming and clinging onto because you don't want to give it up, the call to release those things, it's all grounded in this new relationship that you have by sheer grace. So he's like, so live accordingly. And that's the shape of the letter. You'll see chapters one through three, symmetrical. Chapters one through three are this doctrine, this indicative, just telling us truth. And then if you look at chapter four, verse one, and you can do it now, he's going to say, therefore. Therefore, because chapter one, two, and three are true, therefore, here's how you live because of that. A couple themes of this letter. You can pick up some of Paul's letters, and it's like you're reading someone else's mail, and it's awesome, because you're kind of like, ooh, uh, somebody's in trouble. Somebody's really stepped off the reservation, and he is writing, and he's stern, and he's correcting them. And he's like, stop doing these bad things, like 1 Corinthians 6, okay? Um, there, there are other places where he's addressing specific questions that have been posed to him. And it's very clear that he's kind of like, if you read between the lines, you can understand what some of these questions were. This is a little more general than that. And, and I've said this now a couple times, but I want, I want you to keep this in your mind. Because that doesn't appear to be the case here. It doesn't appear like he's saying, you had questions, here's my answers. Or, uh, bam, I'm coming down on you because you guys are super messed up. He's writing this letter because he's been to Ephesus for years. He's now living under house arrest, kind of a ward of the Roman government. And he's writing to a marginalized minority in a pagan and pluralistic society who tolerate absolutely everything except what this marginalized minority believes. Like anything goes except what they believe. And he knows the pressures they're under. He knows the, the temptation to compromise that they're under. Furthermore, Within this tiny minority of the culture at large, there's an even tinier minority of Jewish followers of Jesus who are like, we have problems with these Gentile followers of Jesus because you're saying, Paul, and they're saying that they have the same rights and access to God as we have. And I just kind of rub this the wrong way because we're Jews. We're, we're the covenant people of God. So he's writing to them, and I'll put it this way. He's writing them a letter that's first and foremost a letter about identity. Y'all don't understand who you are. You don't understand who you are. And Paul's going to remind them, this is who you are. This is how you got that way. And here's what you're supposed to do as a result of those two things. Okay? Who are you? And I think this is in the subtitle. This is, this is kind of the theme of Ephesians. You are a new humanity in Christ. Male and female. Bond and free. 
Gentile and Jew. Pagan beliefs, religious beliefs before Jesus, you are one new humanity in Christ. How did you get that way? Every single one of you by free grace. Nobody deserved it. Nobody was closer to getting it. How do you live in light of that? In a manner worthy of your calling. If you're like, my life is filled with gratitude because God has done these things for me that I could never, ever hope to do or begin to do for myself. And then he sets up some some principles on like, therefore, because I saved you and I made you this new humanity, here's how you live in light of that truth. That I'm, I'm gonna tell you, do this and not that because this corresponds to the reality. And there's another thing you'll see throughout. I, I mentioned the magic stuff before, the mystery stuff, the incantations, the spells. And Paul's gonna riff off that too. And he's gonna say, okay, you like mysteries. Let's talk about a mystery. And this mystery that the angels are looking into and they're like, whoa, is that God allowed humans, every single one of us to go our own way, to break the rules, to love other people and things more than we love him. And instead of just writing us off or condemning and getting rid of us, they're gonna see this whole story unfold like, wait, 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 wait. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, becomes a human being without ceasing to be God and lays down his life to pay their debt of sin. And then the father resurrects him. And he says, anyone who comes and just believes in me receives the gift. And it's Jew and Gentile, it's everyone. He's pursuing Jews and Gentiles simultaneously to create one new humanity that's gonna be transformed by his grace and be renewing the world by his grace. And I just close with this. I want to leave you with a couple gospel applications. And by a couple, I mean three. So that's not a couple. <laughs> Sorry, a few. Number one, remember who you are and remember whose you are. If you're an apprentice of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can use the word Christian. I like thinking in terms of apprenticeship to Jesus. I mean, Christian is a dirty word in our society, and it just comes with all kinds of baggage. It's true. I'm not ashamed of being a Christian. But it's like, no, I want to live my life in apprenticeship to Jesus. Like, you are my Lord, my Savior, my Master, my Rabbi, my Teacher. And I want to walk with you. And I want to do life with you in your presence. And I want to learn from you and do what you did. Live as you lived. And he's saying, if you're that, you are a saint. You too, like Paul, have been called not by your own will, not by your own goodness, but by the will of God. You've been set apart by kindness. You belong to Christ. So listen, this is so important if you're like, how do I live in the midst of a cosmopolitan city where everyone else seems to be pursuing these idols and sex and money and all these things? How do I stay true? Well, you remember who you are and you remember whose you are. You remember the truest thing about you is not the sum total of your failures. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. That is not the truest thing about you. Paul was a colossal failure. Even as he's thinking, he's crushing it. But at the same time, you are not the sum total of your greatest successes. And you're like, and that's what Paul thought before Jesus confronted him. And is like, you are so messed up, son. Because he thinks I'm crushing it. I'm killing it. I'm like, I'm awesome. I'm so good at being good. And Jesus is like, stop. Like, you're not. 
You, you, got the most ba- you got the answer to the most basic question wrong. Who is God? You ready to listen? You ready to receive grace? So by grace, who are you? You are holy. You are faithful. Whose are you? You belong to Christ. You're in him. So everything that he deserves is yours. Remember that. Number two, let God use you regardless of your circumstances. I just want to remind you, Paul was living under house arrest when he wrote what's been considered the greatest, most impactful letter ever written by anyone of any type of letter. The book of Ephesians is considered the most impactful literature. It's done more to change the world than basically anything else that's ever been written. And it's, I mean, now we've divided it up in six chapters. It's a short letter, but he's, he's under house arrest. And he's not like navel gazing and mad at God and like, oh, how could you? I was preaching the gospel. I was living for you and got beat up and shipwrecked and stoned a couple times, dragged outside the city where I didn't die. And now here I am, like, thanks, but no thanks. Like, he's there, and he's like, okay, I got this revolving guard of prison guards around me. I guess I'll tell them about Jesus, because they're going to be here for the next eight or 12-hour shift. Captive audience, literally. But, but we can so easily excuse our non-obedience or ah, just this season of my life needs to be about me right now. I'm hurting. I'm going through difficult things. And I'm not belittling the hurt that you're going through, the hard uh, some of you guys I look out and know like very hard things. But, but thank you, some of you, for continuing to allow God to speak through you, encouragement, support, service to others in Jesus' name. Because I want us all to step back and say, okay, Paul recognizes I'm confined, but I'm not because I'm in Christ. So what are they going to do to stop me? I'm going to write a letter. And by the way, this becomes a circular letter. The words in Ephesus may actually not be in some of the oldest original, not original copies, but some of the oldest copies of this letter that we have. Don't say in Ephesus. Nobody disputes that it was delivered to friends in Ephesus, but it actually became a circular letter. And these little local churches are sharing it and they're hand copying it. They're like, you've got to read this word from Paul, which is the word of God through the spirit. And they're sharing it over and over and over again. So he's like, yeah, I'm confined, but I'm not. So you think, what are my constraints? What are my trials? What are my frustrations? And what if God doesn't want me to be crippled by them, but he's putting me in a place with a certain kind of experience where now I can have a certain kind of conversation to give hope to a certain kind of person? And this week, as I'm like trying to work on this between being in court every day from nine to five, I was like, guess Jesus wants me to talk to the bailiff. He's got to put up with me for another week. All right, that point was let God use you regardless of your circumstances. Finally, as you live in a margin, as a marginalized minority in a pagan and pluralistic society, let the grace of God lead you into the peace of God. You will not find rest in compromise with a pagan culture that hates God. You will not find rest in selling out and just saying, well, everyone else now believes this about this thing, so I guess I'll believe that too. There, I, I made it easier for me. That's not rest. That's not true peace. At the same time, you will not find rest in taking a stand 
for Christ will be constantly agitated and worked up in your soul because just no one gets it except for you and your little tribe. And you're just, that, that's, that's not rest either. He's calling us to rest in the grace of God. And I truly believe if God's grace is a constant theme of one, our meditation, and two, our conversation, some of the rest of this stuff will just sort itself out by the grace of God. Do you generally on the whole think that you deserve more and better from God or less and worse than what you're getting? Because if you're like me, I'm like more and better because I lose sight of grace. I deserve less and worse. Look what he's given me. He's given me more hope than I could ever imagine. He's given me more freedom than I can ever imagine, more purpose, more love, more peace, more hope, more fulfillment, more satisfaction, more joy, more wholeness. So how do we make it in a culture that is so cosmopolitan, but worshiping everything but Jesus? Grace and peace is yours by the Father and through the Son.